This morning will be in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 21. Continuing our series in Mark this morning in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. This will be our last week in Mark for the next several weeks. We'll take a break next week uh, for Easter and uh, talk about the resurrection specifically. Then we'll go for a few weeks in uh, that other sermon series, Welcome to Church. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate, this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? I want you to imagine with me for a moment that it is 1977. There's a movie that comes out, and it blows everyone's minds. It makes way more money than movies have ever made before. It's wildly popular. It stays in theaters for months, and everyone sees it. Everybody talks about it. The movie is about a small force of, uh, let's call them freedom fighters, who in the course of the movie are able to destroy a weapon that's the size of a small planet or a moon. And that weapon can destroy an entire world. So let's call it a kill planet for short. It's a fantastic scene. There's a lucky shot from a fighter pilot who fires a beam directly into this one specific spot that causes a chain reaction and blows up the kill planet. Because the movie's so successful, they plan some sequels. And the second movie is loved just as much as the first was, maybe even more. But at the end of the movie, the heroes are beaten up pretty badly. It doesn't look like they'll stand a chance against the evil king and his high priest in the next film. Then the third movie comes out. Finally, it's all been building to this. Everyone wonders what's going to happen. Is the the evil kingdom going to prevail or will the freedom fighters win the space battle, the, the war in the stars, if you will, once and for all? And then in this movie, the climax is 
basically just the same as the first one. There's another kill planet. So they blow it up again. But, but now, okay, fast forward to 2015. They've made a few other movies in the series since then that weren't quite as successful. And they've also had a ton of books and TV shows and toys and toys and toys come out about the movies. So now they're ready to continue the story, to pick up right where they left off and to keep going. People have been waiting for something like this to come out for a really long time. And then in this movie, they just kind of do the Kill Planet thing again. There's another one. It's a little bit bigger. It's a little bit more dangerous. But the Freedom Fighters go and they blow it up. Again, as the audience, eventually, you would get bored by a repetition like this. If they just kept doing the same thing over and over, telling the same story over and over, maybe some of the details are slightly different. Maybe the, the settings changed a little bit. Some of the stakes are a little bit different. Eventually, we as the audience, we get bored by something like this. But for the freedom fighters in the movie, they're not bored by it. As long as the evil kingdom keeps making kill planets, they'll keep blowing them up every time because that's what they have to do. And for those of us who would otherwise grow bored by the repetition that we might see here in our text, what we have to keep in mind is that any time the Bible repeats itself, it's always there to remind us of something. It's always there to point something out by the repetition that we may have missed if the story isn't repeated in some way. So from our text today, which may feel a little bit repetitive, we can see three understandings that a disciple should have. Three understandings that a disciple should have from the text. First of all, Christ is not running out of power. The first understanding a disciple should have from the text is that Christ isn't running out of power. He is the God-man. His power is abundantly infinite, as is his compassion, his love, his mercy. We don't have to be afraid that he will run out of whatever we need. I said something similar to this last week when we were talking about the woman who was asking for healing for her daughter. Though we may be dogs begging for scraps from the table, when the table has an infinite amount of food, there's more than enough scraps to go around. There are no scraps. He has delicacies in abundance. He's not running out of power as this seemingly redundant miracle is placed in the Gospels to remind us. To show us that. First of all, he works from compassion. Look at the first three verses. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. He was surrounded by crowds that were pressing in on him from every side. Yet he wasn't inconvenienced by them. He wasn't angered by the crowds. He didn't feel like they were in the way of what he was doing. In fact, look at exactly how much Jesus thought and cared about the needs of those in the crowds. He took all of their circumstances into account. They'd been with him three whole days. They had no food because they were simply just following him around. They might faint on the way. They've come from a long ways away. The work Christ does when he uses his infinite power, that work is done from a spirit of compassion over and over. That's what we see in the Gospels. He has compassion on the crowds. From the large group to the individual, he works out of compassion. And he works in spite of our limits as his people. Verse 4, 
And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? The disciples respond to Christ's desire to feed the crowd. He says, We've got to figure something out. I have compassion on them. They need food. I can't send them away. And their first response is to talk about their own limitations. He said, How can one do this? There's so few of us. We don't have enough bread. No one would have enough bread to do this. We're out here in a desolate place. They hear that Christ wants the people to be fed. And basically their response is, Jesus, you don't understand. This can't be done. It's not possible to feed these people right now. We don't have the resources to do it. There's too many of them. There's too few of us. But Jesus doesn't take all that and say, okay, well, I guess we'll have to send them away. Jesus works a miracle. He works miraculously. Look at the rest of uh, these five verses here. He asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. He immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. He worked miraculously. When he exercises his infinite power, he often does so against the natural order. He is the God of miracles. As we'll see later today, we shouldn't forget this as we often do. We shouldn't forget who he is and what he does, how he works, that he does have infinite power, that he works out of compassion, that he works in spite of our limits. And when he does so, he does miracles. It's tempting today to skip over this story in our series in Mark, right? It was like two or three weeks ago that he fed 5,000 people. We just did that. Why would we take any time at all to talk about him feeding 4,000? It even sounds less impressive, right? He's already done five. What difference does four make? Isn't this just another Death Star? Uh, Isn't this just another kill planet? And even the meat of the application and meaning in the text today is on the other side of the miracle. But I think the temptation to move past this text, to skip over it, to get to the other side because it feels repetitive to us, actually tells us something about ourselves. Christ is feeding 4,000 people plus with seven loaves and just a few fish. And our first response is likely, didn't we already do this? Can't we just move on? I think the the dynamic behind that thought gets somewhat to the point of our text today. Christ works miraculously. And we can't allow his miraculous work to become old news to us. We can't allow that to be something that we just move on from, that we just move past. Because he does work miraculously, but he also works repeatedly. He does that over and over. This miracle is pretty close to what we've already read in Mark's gospel. It's 4,000 people rather than 5,000. It's seven loaves and a few fish rather than five loaves and two fish. It's seven basketfuls left over rather than 12. But this is still a miracle. This is still a huge deal. The people in the crowd who got to eat wouldn't have been bummed that this wasn't as big a miracle as the 5,000 from a chapter or two before. 
This repetition isn't meant for us to wonder whether Mark would have benefited from having a good editor who would have said, hey, you really don't need this story. We've already gotten the point. Rather, this repetition is meant for us to see that Christ's power never changes. He's got just as much power as he always has. He's just as capable of working miracles with a crowd of 4,000 as he was a crowd of 5,000. He's just as capable of working miracles in chapter 8 as he was in chapter 6. He's just as capable of working miracles for Gentiles in their region as he is for Jews in their region. And he is just as capable of working miracles in a room of 60 people in Conway, Arkansas in 2022 as he was then, as he was there. He works repeatedly. His power does not run out. We've seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle in the Bible. And that repetition is there so that we know no task is too large for him. His power isn't running dry. He can still do it. He has given us all that we need to believe by his repetition. You have all you need to believe. That's the second understanding a disciple should have from this text. That you have all you need to believe. Look at verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Mark didn't place this story, these verses, immediately after a repeated miracle of feeding the crowd by accident. He did it on purpose to show us something. He's drawing attention to the absurdity of the Pharisees' request here. They're asking for a sign. You don't need a sign. They came and began to argue with him. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. You don't need a sign. You have all you need to believe. They were coming and arguing with him. Jesus at this point has walked on water. He's healed the deaf. He's fed crowds of huge numbers twice. And the Pharisees think, you know what? Let's go argue this guy. At some point, you have to wonder whether they weren't just evil whether they weren't just scared, whether they weren't just wrong, maybe they're just not very smart. They really think that this man who does miracle after miracle has shown himself to do things that no one on earth could possibly be able to do apart from the power of God. They think, let's go word fight this guy. I bet we'll get him. I bet we'll do something to make him look really foolish. How insane do they have to be? Not only are they deciding to argue with Jesus, but they're trying to test him. They're asking him for a greater sign, but he's already given them a sign. He's done countless miracles at this point over and over. What more of a sign could they possibly need? He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and they say, show us something else. What else you got? What have you done for me lately? Those were the signs. That was the sign. Any one of his miracles would have been the sign. He had just fed a crowd for the second time. So much so that it's repetitious in the story. This is an encore performance. They weren't small crowds. Word would have gotten out that everybody got to eat. And that there was more food when they finished than there was when they started. How could they possibly think they need more? Somehow what he'd done wasn't enough for them. 
They didn't need another sign. They needed to believe the signs they had already been given. More signs wasn't their problem. More evidence wasn't their issue. Their problem was unbelief. And it's ours too. How often do we keep waiting around, acting like we need God to give us some kind of special sign before we'll start doing what he's called us to do? Before we'll follow through in obedience to what he's already revealed to us. We have in our hands, in these scriptures, a special message from the God of the universe that is written to you to reveal himself to you. And rather than reading it, rather than doing what it says, we so often wait around for our feelings to line up with what we know to be true. We wait around to see if we feel called, whatever that means, to do what he has explicitly told us to do. That's asking for a sign. If there's something that says I should move forward in faith and do X, and you say, I don't know, maybe I'm not being called to that. Well, if scripture tells you to do it, what more do you need? What more of a sign would help you? To, to ask for a greater revelation, to ask for a clearer calling when he has already told you what is good. That's asking for signs. It's saying, yeah, I, God, I know that you've called me to spread your glory over the whole earth. I know I'm supposed to sacrificially love my neighbor as myself. I know I'm supposed to count everything as loss except for the glorious gain of knowing Christ as Lord. But when you wrote that, you were writing to other people, right? What do you want me to do? Where's my name in the text? I need you to tell me explicitly. I need you to write it in the clouds. I need you to tell me in my morning cereal. Because for some reason, you writing it in a book through divine revelation, which has been preserved and passed down for 2,000 years, translated from several different languages into modern English and reprinted for a very cheap price that you could buy at Walmart. That's not enough of a sign for you to do what he has called you to do. Shame on us when we ask for him to give us more. We don't need a sign. We just have to abandon our skepticism and believe. We have to trust that he's already given us enough. When we act this way, when we ask for a greater sign, what we often do is we cause him to sigh by our skepticism. Look at the beginning of verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Such an attitude is that of the Pharisees. As us, which we have when we ask for signs, rather than just being obedient. What that does is it causes the God-man here in this story to sigh deeply in his spirit. What a terrible condemnation that sentence is for us. He had compassion on the crowds. He provides new mercies for his people every morning. He is steadfastly faithful to a people who continually turn their backs on him. But now, in this text, from that question, he sighs deeply. This isn't a common, quick reaction that's just the knee-jerk response of Jesus. You don't see him sighing and just exhaling all the time throughout Scripture. This is a rare, uncommon exhalation of Christ because of the attitude of man presented to him. He not only sighs, he not only sighs deeply, but he does so in his spirit. That's the core of Christ, the God-man, being at the point of exhaustion because of the skeptical unbelief of the people that he's come to redeem. He took on flesh to save them, 
And they're asking for a greater sign. We have to stop our unbelief at some point. Eventually, we have to stop asking for a greater sign. Because like that generation in the text, we won't receive anything more than he's already revealed. You won't be given more than you've received already. Because he's given you enough. Look at the rest of that verse. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Christ asks a question that seems to be rhetorical because we get no answer. We get no rebuttal from the Pharisees. And that question should break our heart to see Christ pushed to the point of having to ask it. Why does this generation seek a sign? After asking the question, he declares that this generation will have no sign that's given to them. Now, that's an odd statement, right? Because they've already received signs, haven't they? He's already revealed himself over and over and over again. His legitimacy as the Messiah is clear to anyone who's read the text up to this point. Everywhere he went, he performed miracles, and immediately people began proclaiming that he is the Messiah to the point where he's having to say, stop talking about it. Stop telling people. Don't tell anybody what I did for you. He's trying to stifle that message from going forth, even now here in this text. But it was evident who he was to anyone who saw him, anyone who watched him. They have already received signs. And they were going to keep being given signs. He's not done performing miracles. He's going to continue performing them over and over in this gospel, which we'll see when we return to the series of Mark after Easter. They were going to continue getting signs. They had already received signs. So why did Jesus say that this generation wouldn't receive a sign? We know he's not a liar, so what does he mean when he says that? I think what he's saying is that those signs will continue to be performed right in front of them. They won't see. They won't understand. Just as he asked the disciples later on in the text, Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you not have eyes to see and ears to hear? They refuse to believe even though they've already received enough signs to warrant their belief. They don't need anything more. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you don't believe what I've already given you, more isn't going to fix your problem. We can see that pretty clearly in the the Matthew account of this story where we get an added detail to Christ's answer. Matthew 16.4, which should be on the screen. Says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. He's telling them if they don't already believe who he is based on what he's done, greater signs isn't going to do it. But they will get a greater sign. They will get the greatest sign, the sign of Jonah, who, just as he was in the belly of the whale for three days and rose again out of the whale into life. So will Christ, that he fell into death for three days and rose again to new life. Next week's Easter, when we gather together to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, to glory in him as the first fruit, the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead, we'll focus on his resurrection as the central tenet of our faith. So much so that when someone says, how do I know God exists? How do I know that he loves me? How do I know I can be saved? The resurrection is the answer to those questions. If Christ coming back to life isn't enough for us to believe, 
a greater, more obvious revelation of his divinity isn't going to do it. If Christ coming back to life isn't enough for you to believe, it doesn't matter what he writes in the clouds. It doesn't matter what you see in your cereal. Christ coming back to life is the greatest sign you could have been given. And what Christ is saying to the Pharisees here is that you're not getting anything greater because you're not going to see whatever I reveal to you anyway. You're not going to understand. You're not going to believe. You're continuing in doubt. They won't be given any more than they've already received because they've already received more than enough to warrant their belief. And so have we. We should never forget this. That we are a people who are so quick to forget it. That's the third understanding a disciple should have from our text today. That we are quick to forget who he is. We're quick to forget him. And we often err in a lack of belief. Verses 14 and 15. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. We often err in a lack of belief. Like the Pharisees, the disciples were lacking belief in who Jesus was. This unbelief is the leaven of which Jesus is talking about. The unbelief which doesn't see him as who he is, is what he's meaning when he refers to the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. He heard their discussion and cautioned them not to fall into the same patterns, the same mindsets of the Pharisees and Herod. People who had seen Jesus and yet still lacked belief. People who failed to believe the signs that he had already given them. He wasn't speaking here of literal leaven and literal bread of the Pharisees of Herod, Pharisees and Herod. But his disciples thought that that's what he was talking about. You know that by their continued response, verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They have no idea what he's talking about. They're saying, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. We don't have any bread, much less bread with leaven in it. You know what? I would kill for some bread that had the leaven of Pharisees and Herod because I'm hungry. They don't know what he's saying. They're erring because they are forgetting who he is. The disciples completely missed Jesus' point. They heard what he said and began to discuss how they had no bread in the boat. How could they beware the bread of the Pharisees if they don't have any bread at all? But what a ridiculous question. First of all, they had bread. They had a loaf. That's what it says in verse 14. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. They had some bread. They had the resources that were already necessary for God to do a miraculous work already at their disposal. But their lack of belief caused them to overlook this fact. Do the math. The the one piece of bread back in the 5,000 and the 4,000, that would have been enough to feed way more than the disciples in the boat. But they see it and say they have no bread. When they fell into the mindset of the Pharisees and Herod, as we often do, when they think that who God is and what he's already done isn't enough to affect their lives in the here and now, they're downplaying what God has already given to them, the resources he's already equipped them with. And we can so often do that same thing. We can look around and we can think about how we have so few people in this room and how there's no way for us to reach the people of Conway. Conway is so big. And our church sometimes feels so small. How could we possibly do that? 
We've got no bread. We've got no chance. But that's as wrong as we could be. We have us. We're more than enough to do it. Christ started his religion with 12 people. 12 disciples that he sent out. 60? That's way more than enough. That's way more than God needs to work. That's way more than God needs to reach the people of Conway. Rather than bickering over the fact that they have no bread, like the disciples, with the God-man who uses a single loaf to feed thousands, they should have trusted him. They should have understood that he is the one who has the power to work. That the one with that power is merely feet away. How ridiculous does this scene sound? Verse 16 is one of the more ironically funny texts to me in all of Mark. Maybe even all of scripture. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. It's ludicrous. As Jesus is about to point out. For his people to be arguing among themselves over the amount of bread that they have right in front of him. But he's quick to remind them who he is. Look at the rest of the text. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Luckily, Jesus, an infinitely better man than each of us, doesn't throw up his hands. He doesn't ditch his disciples for smarter or better men. But he's quick to remind them of who he is, even as they would rather fight and argue amongst themselves. This reminder of who Christ is and what he's done that we so desperately need is part of why I think your church attendance is so important. In addition to the worship that God is due as a church body each week, the fellowship that we have here, the chance to gather together, to grow, to learn, to share, to bring the people that we've invited in to be able to hear the gospel. In addition to all those things, what we need as the people of God is a reminder of who Jesus is. Because in more ways than we remember, we've forgotten. It's only been a week, but we're so quick to forget. We're so quick to move on. We're so quick to think about how we have no bread while the God of miracles, the bread of life, is right in front of us. Part of my job in preaching to you every week is to make sure that you remember who Jesus is. To make sure that you remember what he's done. Because in more ways than you probably realize, you have already forgotten from the week before. Part of my job is just saying, nope, remember him. Remember what he did? He's still doing that. Remember him. Remember what he's like. Remember how he loves you. Remember the gospel. Remember how he gave himself for you. Remember. Because we're so quick to forget. 
This text is one that I have been excited to preach this entire series in Mark, specifically for the interaction that we have in these verses. Anyone who reads the Bible and thinks that it's dry, thinks that it's boring, obviously is just lacking imagination. Jesus, sitting in the boat with his disciples, after just doing a miracle where he feeds thousands of people with a tiny amount of food, here's his disciples talking about, I don't think we have enough bread for this. Are you kidding me? So he turns and he asks them these questions in a way that you've got to think how to point to it, but kind of a smile too. He's a little perturbed, maybe a little frustrated, but he can't help but find that it's funny that they're continuing to ask this question. Are you kidding me, guys? You're talking about how you don't have any bread? How do you not get this? This is now the third time we've had this conversation. We had it before the 5,000. We had it before the 4,000. We're having it now, and there's like 12 of you. What do you mean you don't have any bread? We've had the same conversation over and over. Jesus, the people are hungry, so feed them. But Jesus, we don't have any bread. Abracadabra, now you do. Over and over and over. How do they not get this? They did it with the 5,000, the 4,000. That was just like 10 verses ago. We've already done this. Jesus has the cadence here of a man who's at the end of his rope in some ways. Whose patience has been all but exhausted. But it hasn't been exhausted. He has patience to go around. He is long-suffering in his love for his people. He doesn't give up on his disciples. He doesn't admonish them forever. He doesn't leave to reevaluate his relationship and think, man, i got to get some new guys. These just aren't getting it. He reminds them of his power. He continues to show them over and over, slowly and painstakingly, not only who he is, but also how good he is. Then he asks them a compassionate question, which needed no answer. We get none in this text. Verse 21. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? It's only compassion there. It's only love there. It's only a patient father with his children of, do you not yet get it? Do you not yet see my love? Do you not yet see the power that I have? That I not only have the power to feed these people, but I am willing to do it over and over and over again. He makes the connections explicitly clear to his disciples, who we have to guess get this message, because later in Mark chapter 8, that's when Peter finally says, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one who was supposed to come. You're God in the flesh. It finally sinks in. It finally hits them who he is and what he's like. He asks his people, do you not yet understand? Is who I am not yet clear to you? Is my love, compassion, power, glory, my goodness not obvious to you yet? Am I not enough to meet the needs that you have? And abundantly so. And I can't help but think that he's asking these same same things of us today. We're in Mark 8. We're far enough along that we're about to take a short break in this gospel. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ not clear to you yet? Do you not yet understand? 
He is infinite in power, infinite in compassion, infinite in love, and all of that for the good of you, his people. Do you not yet understand? He isn't running out of power. He's given you all you need to believe. The disciples finally started to understand here in this text. And it's my prayer that we as his people today will start to understand as well. Not just to know, but to start to remember. Not just to hear, but to perceive. Not just to have eyes, but to see. That we might be his people who know who he is and trust who he is. So that whenever we have one loaf in the boat, our first response isn't to say, man, I wish we had more. Our first response is to turn to Christ and say, what can you do with this? Because he can do whatever he wants with it. He can do whatever he wants with this. We are enough to reach the city of Conway and to change it forever. Right now, in this room, these people, our resources. He can do it. Do you not yet understand? Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the glorious repetition that we see in your gospel. For the reminder that we get when we read it. Thank you for showing us who you are and what you do. Thank you for having compassion and love for your people over and over and over again. For sticking with your disciples. For sticking with us. For being the kind of God who loves us in spite of our failures. Thank you for doing so much with so little. Thank you for allowing us to join you in your work. Help for us to not only see, but to perceive. To not only hear, but to understand. Help for us to know you, to love you, to trust you. And remind us of that every day. Because we desperately need to remember who you are and what you're like. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.